Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Very early on in my career, I had a boss who believed that leaders are most successful when they're willing to open their kimono with people. This clever phrase was his way of saying that leaders need to be fully transparent, honest, and clear about the values they stand for and the standards they hold dear. Over time, I came to realize that my boss's great underlying insight was that once people really know you, trust you, and feel close to you, they'll know how to implement your intentions. Which brings me to this podcast. As I kick off this special episode, I want to open my kimono a bit and quickly explain why I launched it and the hopes and dreams I have for its impact. If you've been listening in for a while, you know that all of my guests have been truly brilliant people. Their insights into life and leadership have repeatedly been stunning, life-changing even, and it's thrilling to me to share these conversations with you to an audience that now includes people in 132 countries around the world. But no one has shown up here by accident. They've all been handpicked because their work in some meaningful way not only challenges traditional leadership thinking, it inherently urges managers and organizations to evolve and to change how they seek to motivate human performance in their workplaces. So the underlying goal of this podcast, therefore, is to, episode by episode, persuade managers that leading with an intentional balance of mind and heart will not only elevate the well-being of people and organizations, it will drive greater performance in the most sustainable way. So in a very real sense, I'm trying to help change the world by changing views about the value of bringing heart into leadership. A few weeks ago, I was speaking with my producer, Eric, and told him my goal is to keep each episode to an hour or less. And his response was that I might want to make an exception with this rule if a conversation with a guest ever proved to be so meaningful and worthwhile that my listeners would actually want to hear more. And this episode is the one where I realized very early on that Eric's advice was spot on, and I stopped looking at the clock. It's still rare in business to meet CEOs who aren't entirely focused on the bottom line or who don't formulaically prioritize the needs of shareholders above all other stakeholders. But my guest today is Doug Conant former CEO of the Campbell Soup Company, not to mention the former president of Nabisco and former chairman of Avon Products. And as you're about to hear, he not only learned that by putting people first, all stakeholders' boats will rise, he also had the courage of his convictions to lead this way at every organization he ran. When he took over as CEO of Campbell Soup, Gallup told him his company had the lowest employee engagement of any firm they'd ever measured. But in a matter of just a few years, Doug had turned things entirely around. So when you hear him describe what he did to elevate employee satisfaction and commitment to such remarkable levels, I hope you leave as inspired as I still am. His methods are the embodiment of the lead from the heart ideal and the future, I believe, of workplace leadership. And here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you. Well, let's get started here. And keeping in mind, we've just done the introduction, so our audience knows that you have been the president of Campbell Soup, the president of Nabisco Foods, and the chairman of Avon Products. So it may come as a surprise to them as it did to me, to learn that you were actually fired from a job when you were 32 years old. And it was a good job. It was a big job. 
As you write in your book, Doug, you were the marketing director of Parker Brothers Toys and Games Company, which manufactures, I think, was the creator of Monopoly. And your boss stunned you one day. He said, Doug, your job has been eliminated. Clear out your desk by noon, which just completely strikes me as, wow, like who talks to employees like that? We're going to get to that in a second. But I'd like to know, what were the key steps that you took? So you got fired from this job and then went on to have this magnificent career. So what were the steps that you took? How did you go from being summarily dismissed with that kind of inherent disrespect to picking your feet up and dusting yourself off and going on to having this really great success? First of all, Mark, I've had my setbacks, and that's just one of them. All along the way, no one has a straight line ascent to some kind of successful career, I find. My first job, when I started with General Mills, my first performance review, my brand manager gave me a satisfactory review, but on the bottom of the performance review sheet, his boss had to write something, and his boss wrote one line, you should be looking for another job, and signed his name. So I was a slow starter when I started my business career. I worked hard. I was a grinder. I was quiet, kept my head down and did my job, but I didn't do it necessarily with distinction. But I became a good contributor. I got to Parker Brothers and nine years later, I was let go at Parker Brothers. They had just sold the company. It had gone to a private equity group. They were downsizing and they chose to let me go. They explained that the position had been eliminated and that my job was eliminated and that I needed to be out of there by noon. And I was. I was totally caught off guard. My career was over at General Mills in a snap, and I was devastated by it. The way I picked myself up was by getting some really great help. The one thing I encourage people to do, and this was in my case, I had an outplacement counselor who helped me. His name was Neil McKenna, and he helped me kind of get my act together and not look back on the past and feel as if I was a victim of some cruel and unusual punishment. He got me looking forward, focusing forward on how I was going to pick myself up and get going again. And with his guidance, that same day I was let go, that afternoon, he said, we got to focus forward. The challenge is to get you ready to get back into the workplace and to get back on track again. And we don't have any time to waste here. So in short order, he got me focused forward and focused on where I was going next as opposed to where I'd been. I spent time with lessons learned on that experience with him, but I was very focused forward. The first thing he had me do, which was interesting, was handwrite my life story. And it took two weeks. I wish I had a copy of it. I can't find it anywhere. And that was an incredibly cathartic experience because when you lose your job, you sort of feel like worthless and like powerless. You feel like a victim. And I started writing my life story and I realized that my family story was one of perseverance, of family members who picked themselves up and made something of themselves. And as I went through that experience over those two weeks and hand wrote my life story, my family story, I realized in some way that I came from hardy stock and that if they could pick themselves up from much more devastating situations than I had ever had, I could pick myself up from this debacle at the time. And it was a debacle. We had just had our second son. 
We had a big mortgage. We had to make this work somehow. Well, let's go back to why you were let go. So it's not clear in the book that the company had been sold and that the people that actually let you go were people that had no historic connection to the company. So this guy did. The guy that let me go did. And he had to make decisions. So there were choices to be made. And if they wanted to keep me, they could have kept me. Okay. So why did they let you go then? So in other words, were there performance issues or was it just that they had to get 20% of the people out the door and you were just unfortunate? I mean, were there, at 32 years old, were there shortcomings in your own performance at that level that made it easy for them to make that decision? Oh, it was a hard decision and there weren't shortcomings. And I recently did a video on this and I said, you know, in hindsight, I look back on it and I would say, maybe I didn't do anything wrong, but I didn't do enough right. And I hadn't lifted my leadership profile up to a place where they felt I was indispensable. And so I hadn't done anything wrong, but I hadn't done enough right. I believe it was a difficult decision for the individual. And once you've been in these seats, you have to let people go. Things happen. And it's awkward and it's hard to tell somebody you're letting them go. And if you're taking coaching from a HR professional, they're going to say, do it in a short, sweet way and move on. And this individual let me go in a short, sweet way and moved on. He was clearly uncomfortable with it, which is why he was so direct and why he couldn't wait to get me out of his office and why he neglected to cover a number of things with me. What I don't say in the book is, I don't think I say it in the book, but later that day, the HR executive had to call me and tell me all my benefits because the person who let me go felt awkward about that and just wanted to get me out of his office. So it was an awkward situation. I've had to let people go in awkward situations, and he didn't handle it very well. Have you, in those experiences where you've terminated people, subsequent to how he let you go, have you ever let anybody go with that kind of a communication, particularly somebody who you know was in a high-level position? I mean, I, I think anybody deserves respect, but somebody who had been in the firm and contributing. Yeah, I understand the question. Until you've walked a mile in those shoes, it's hard to say. I would say, I swore after I went through that, that I would never do that to anybody else. Yet I ended up doing it maybe one time to somebody else in a very tricky situation. And I've regretted it to this day. But, you know, out of dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations like that, I had one that was regrettable in terms of the way I handled it. So you never know until you're in the thick of thin things how you're going to handle it. But in principle, I think, obviously, you ought to be respecting people and you ought to be doing things in a very thoughtful, caring way. And for the most part, I was able to do that. But look, I was in a sticky situation one other time where I didn't handle it very well. And, and so I understand those things can happen. You just got to move on. Got to have a thick skin here, unfortunately. Well, I think so. And we're going to talk about your outplacement, Neil McKenna, and how he helped you in a moment. But there was a, a woman that ran a very large American outplacement center. And I said to her, I said, what's your biggest complaint about the people that come to you? And she understood what I was asking because I didn't articulate it well there or here. What she was really asking was, when people come to you, how do they reflect on the company that they were let go from? And she said repeatedly that managers don't have the guts to say, 
this is why we're letting you go. And so they just do this quick, sorry, but the job's been ended. You're not going to have a job here anymore. And here's now the HR person to tell you about your benefits. And what she said was, if you just took an extra moment to say, it's not about you as a person. You've done wonderful work here. And this is what struck me when I was reading your book. This is why you know I wanted to talk to you about it, because I just thought this idea about making sure that people are left feeling whole so that they don't spend the next six months going, was I a bad person? Was I a bad human? Did I not do good work? It's so confusing to people that if you just take the time to use the formula and principle that you just described, do it in a more caring way. You can still be direct and still be caring, don't you think? In principle, yes, but I understand the dilemma because some people are never going to understand why they're let go. And there's always another question. Well, why does this? Why not that? Did you consider this? Did you consider that? What I would say is a woman running a large outplacement center, I don't know how many people she had to let go, but that is a slippery slope. And I understand why people are counseled to just get on with it. The decision's been made and to move on. It can be done in a more caring way, but this is just difficult for everybody. The person letting me go was a good guy. It was just an awkward situation. It was hard for him to handle it. And he didn't handle it particularly well, but that's life. This is hard stuff. And uh, it's hard for everybody. Nobody likes letting people go. But you left feeling, in your own words, victimized and hurt and disappointed and shocked. And I left feeling devastated. I was devastated. I was caught off guard. I guess I was hurt. I don't think I used that word. But I don't think any degree of explanation would have changed any of that. Right, right. I had still invested nine years in the company, and it was over. And the guy could have spent an hour explaining things to me, and I was still going to feel devastated and hurt. I can speak to my case. I don't know that I would have felt a whole lot better no matter what. I had to go home and tell my wife I'd lost my... Yeah, I understand. I understand. The truth is you know? the truth. Yeah, I, I totally understand. I'm just wanting to dig just briefly into sure. just the, the initial approach that he took, not to say that some people won't beat you down and you finally have to say, it's over, get out. I know that that circumstance, I've had that experience where people just don't want to accept it. I also appreciate the fact that you can leave people at least feeling a little bit better about the circumstances, but it's a choice. And speaking of choices, I mean, you literally went and met with that guy at four o'clock in the afternoon. So you went from feeling all those emotions to having a meeting with your outplacement counselor in the same day. Well, and that was at his insistence. Uh, and, and in that one day, I had probably the most devastating experience in my career being let go and not being prepared for it feeling blindsided. In hindsight, I probably should have been not so blindsided, but I did feel blindsided. And then at the end of the day, I call this outplacement counselor and he answers the phone. And he says, hello, this is Dan McKenna. How can I help? And this was before caller ID. So he had no idea who I was. I could have been the plumber calling to schedule an appointment. But every time Neil answered the phone for the next 20 years that I knew him, he would answer the phone saying, hello, this is Neil McKenna. How can I help? And that was one of the best conversations that I have ever had at a time when I really needed help. And here's a guy answering the phone unconditionally saying, how can I help? Wonderful. And then he said, come on over. Let's talk. Let's get into this. And oh, my gosh, what a blessing. So I drove right over to his offices 
And he said, let's talk this through. What happened? How are you feeling? And here's what we've got to do. And we mobilized to move forward at that very moment. I must say, I believe the company that let me go, I was blessed that they selected this fellow to be my outplacement counselor. And they were counting on him to pick me up because they certainly didn't. But they had sort of outsourced this to an exceptional fellow who was a blessing and a mentor to me for the next 20 years until he passed away in 2006. What a gift. Yeah. And I went and saw him that day. And by the end of my hour and a half with him that late afternoon, he had me focusing forward on what was next. And I needed to write my family story and get it to him in two weeks and start to gather myself. And then I got into my outplacement process where I started to realize that I had been keeping my head down, just doing my job as I saw it for almost a decade, trying to meet the needs of the organization. But I hadn't lifted my head up and seen what was possible or what was doable. What does that mean, Doug? Well, I had projects to manage. So I was managing projects. I didn't know anybody outside of my company, really in terms of in my sector or outside of General Mills or outside of the Parker Brothers Toy Group. I had just been going to work, doing my job, and then going home and spending time with my family. And I was sort of out of touch with the broader job market and the broader world. And I learned very early on that I had to lift my head up and get connected with the broader world because nothing is forever. And that I needed to be engaged in that larger world in a way where I could start to find my footing and find places where I could contribute and add some value. I I never even thought about that stuff while I was just showing up for work every day. So Neil tells you in your first meeting that he wants you to write your life experience. Mm -hmm. Now, that's like not a common practice. So pin this down. Why did he want you to do this? What was the outcome for you in doing this? And do you recommend other people? Like, should all leaders be doing this? This is the grand question. Yeah, I think it's an important question. And it was my life story, but it was also my family story. Because he wanted me to write about my family and where I came from. And I think all leaders need to be incredibly grounded in their story. And I don't think most leaders are reflective enough on this front. They don't really know where they come from, and they aren't as, I'll just use myself, I wasn't really well-grounded in what my core beliefs were about leadership and about my life journey. I hadn't really ever thought about it. I just was living it, you know? I was sort of living my life by the seat of my pants. I'd never really thought about it. And having to write my life story and my family story in detail, and he wanted everything I could think of. Cover the waterfront. (laughs) How long was it in pages, just for example? I don't remember. It was long. And as I said, I wish I could find it. But I think he might have kept it. At any rate, it was an important exercise. All of a sudden, I was writing about my family coming to this country in 1623 (laughs) and my life story beyond that and what my grandparents had been through and my parents and my journey and All of a sudden, I was in touch with this family heritage of perseverance and fortitude and contribution and trying to build a better world and the place I had come from. And I became more well-grounded in where I'd come from and where I wanted to go. And so 
it was a really good platform to start me on this reimagining my my journey on the heels of being let go. Did he say take two weeks to do this? How did you know how long to go with it? Well, he told me to take as much time as it took, but I said I can do this in two weeks because I wanted to get on with it. I didn't have a severance package that lasted forever and I needed a job. So I sort of just plowed into this thing and two weeks is a long time if that's what you're doing. Well, actually, that's what I was thinking that many of us, if we were to take on the exercise, would think, you know, I'll knock this out in a day. So you committed yourself to this. So I'm sensing that it inspired you. Somewhere along the line, this acknowledgement that your family had this history of perseverance and resilience and success and hardy stock and history of recovery and fortitude and contribution and all the things that you mentioned. I mean, that would like, hey, I can get back on the saddle. (laughs) I got a history of this. Is that Mm. kind of what it did for you? It did. And remember, it was handwritten. Mm. He wanted it handwritten, not typed. Any reason? And that's Well, he wanted it personal Mm. and handwriting. It made it more personal. And so to this day, when I teach, I actually have people submitting handwritten notes to me and signing them, letters of commitment for work they tend to do. And it made a difference in what I wrote for him, I'm convinced. And he wanted me to go into every nook and cranny. He was very clear about covering the waterfront, my family history, my personal history. And when you go down that rabbit hole, Mark, there's a lot to talk about. Sure. And I, I did it all. What was interesting was, as I had the pressure, because we had an appointment in two weeks, I really went at it full bore, got it done, and in two weeks, and he read it over a week. And the next appointment, we were able to get going because he had so much information on me now that nobody else had ever seen, including my parents or anybody else, that he was really well positioned to help me right out of the blocks. And we discussed what I had written. And he had all kinds of questions for me for clarification and making sure he understood me. And he challenged me on a variety of things. And I found it to be an important step forward. And to this day, I encourage people to do that kind of self-examination. And that's part of the blueprint exercise in my new book, where we have them reflecting on their life story and the lessons learned there in a way that can help them kind of get more well-grounded in their core beliefs about how they want to walk in the world. So I'm assuming then that he's asking this for everyone. So in other words, anyone that he's counseling after they've just had a job loss, he's asking him to do that same exercise. I would assume so, but I don't know that. I That was my experience with him. I would assume so. What's interesting is I ended up working with an executive search person who's also in my book, mm-hmm. who was a gifted executive search person, the best person I've ever worked with in the space. And he doesn't cotton much to my six-step process that I talk about in the blueprint. But the first thing he did with everybody he interviewed was he started off with their life story. And he would write a report about their life story. And he's done over 10,000 of these over time. He's recently retired. And he found that he was getting insights into who they were, because this is part of the process I've uncovered. I believe your life story is your leadership story. Mm -hmm. If I ever talked to a leader, and I would bet any leader you've ever talked to, they don't tell you about a training and development exercise they've been through. They talk to you about a life story and how it's influenced their story moving forward. 
And I find it to be really part of the foundation of your story going forward is where you've been in the past. And so whether it was my executive recruiter or my outplacement counselor, both of them started in the same place with one's life story. I'm very much in agreement with you. In fact, you know, this idea of know thyself as being the foundation, what you call the leadership story, I absolutely 100% agree. And in fact, in hiring people over the years, particularly into senior leadership roles, I would ask them, what was it like to grow up? Where did you grow up? What were your influences? How did it shape your values? And it was a short interview if they couldn't go with me on that because they hadn't done the work. And I think, you know, when you get into trouble and you know who you are, all those great attributes that your family has, I got to believe that those are your rock. You go and wait a minute. I've handled this before. I come from an environment where we know how to deal with these kinds of problems. I think that would be very, very strengthening. And the converse is also true. If you don't know where to go to, if you don't know who you are, then you can't really step up. You don't know what to hold on to, right? That's absolutely right. And I would tell you, going through that process in recruiting people, working with this executive recruiter, whose name is Jim, it's amazing the success rate we had with that thorough life story as background to the interview process that we would go through. We had a, an amazing success rate, and I had over 40 people that I recruited with this fellow who have gone on to be CEOs and board contributors, and probably another 40 who have gone on to C-suite positions and are board members for companies. It all started out with starting with your life story. So, and then the discipline of following up on that with good, strong interviewing. So was there an intuition that he gleaned from learning people's stories as to whether they would be a good fit in the organization or whether they would be a good fit for a role? How many different biographies did he write, did you say? He wrote over 10,000. I mean, that's an extraordinary number of to-do lists. Yeah. So, you know, what was he getting from them? I'm really curious as to what he was able to extract from it. Well, he would get the life story and where they grew up and their favorite pet. And if they had a newspaper route, or if they helped out in the family's delicatessen, or what they liked to do in school, he was gifted at probing to get insights into the character of the people and their work ethic and their curiosity and their competence. Look, ultimately, when you're recruiting people from 30,000 feet, it's three things. Their competence, which is both their IQ, their EQ, and what I call their FQ, their functional competence in their field of study. Mm -hmm. It's their character. Do they do what they say they're going to do and do it uh, in an enduring way? And it's the chemistry they bring to the situation with others because mm -hmm. most of our work is team-based. Yep. And is the team better off for them having been there? And so you get insights from these stories that can be corroborated around the edges with good due diligence and you find people that are competent, that are high character, that are good with other people and who have a similar value system to the value system of the enterprise that you're working with at the time. And I believe you can have a good hit rate. With that thoroughness, that thoughtfulness, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're, you're going to do that kind of work, you're going to get the benefits from it, yeah. sounds like, in a tremendous way. Yeah. So that was the beginning of a long journey for me. And that happened 35 years ago. And the next 35 years, in my case, led me to the actual writing of the blueprint, which is sort of codifying 
35 years of learning into six steps that you can do in a day. So uh, it's been a long, arduous journey. I, I wish it hadn't taken me 35 years to get it, but I'm a little slow. I think you need to see it the other way around. I think the gift <laughs> is by spending those 35 years, you have the wisdom to share, you know? Plenty of people write books and they don't really have any depth in what they're talking about because they haven't experienced it. And what came through in your book was all of that experience, you know, and that's coming through in the first half hour of this conversation, by the way. <laughs> I want to shift gears with you. Sure. And you don't name the book, but I think I know the book because I read it. David Brooks from the New York Times, he wrote a book called The Second Mountain. I think it came out like last year or the year before. And he asked this question in it, should we live for our resume or our eulogy? So to just stage this for our audience, according to Brooks, if we live according to our resume, we're focused on success, status, and wealth, and all the external validation that comes from those. And if we live according to our eulogy virtues, in other words, how we'd like to be remembered when we're gone, we devote our behavior to building successful relationships, treating others with respect and kindness and love, and Brooke says those are the two sides, if you will, two competing sides of our nature. The external and the internal side are at war, is what he says. So my question to you in reading your book was, why do you think so many of us feel that we need to subordinate our higher values in order to succeed in our careers? Why is it binary? And then draw on your idea of having a unified purpose as a means to resolving that conflict, which is what you talk about. I don't think it is binary. And that's where David and I sort of, we don't disagree, but we don't fully agree. I don't buy that it has to be a binary choice. Good. I believe you can live for your resume and your eulogy, and you should always be trying to do that. But I don't want to say he's wrong. I just think you can push this further. His premise is based on the teachings of a, a rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik, a rabbi and Jewish philosopher who's just an exceptional thought leader. And David recognizes that and talks about him liberally. But I don't believe it's an either-or proposition. I believe it's a both-and. The dilemma in the sense that it's sort of like Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great. He talks about the exceptional leaders are the leaders who embrace the genius of the end and reject the tyranny of the or. I don't believe it's resume or eulogy. I believe it's resume and eulogy. The reason I believe David talks about it being at war is that the resume virtues are out in front of us every day. You know, all you got to do is watch Entertainment Tonight or TMZ. And you see about all these people who are making all this money, who have all this status and all this success. It's just ever present and out in front of us on social media, wherever you turn. And as a result, I think we have heightened exposure to the resume virtues. While in our culture right now, the eulogy virtues are somewhat subordinated on an everyday basis. And then you're surrounded by people in your work life who are climbing the mountain and trying to get the next position. And you see who got the big bonus or the new car or the parking space or the added staff. So... That's out in front of us, and we tend to lose sight of, I think, the eulogy virtues, which are more internal. And we begin to discount them a little bit if we're not careful. I think that's an important watch out, and that's what David is really saying to me. Watch out. Don't fall prey to that thinking. Embrace the genius of the end. You can pursue a resume agenda, but do it in a way that's in harmony with your eulogy agenda. 
And I believe you can do that, but I think you have to double down on focusing on the eulogy virtues. I believe they grow out of your life story, your family story, and they grow out of your reflection and your sense of purpose with how you want to walk in the world, your study of others. My study of Joseph Soloveitchik and of David Brooks led me to a point of view that said, you know, I can do better. I can start to bring my resume virtues and my eulogy virtues into harmony with one another, and I can still contribute in a big way, and I can have a much more fulfilling journey. So you just said you could have a more fulfilling journey. Do you also think that where we're headed that having, I don't know if the balance is the right word, but I'll just use it to simply describe the integration of both, the internal, the external, the career, or the obituary. Do you think that we're heading into a time where people in general just admire, respect, and want to work for people who are more integrated that way? Or do you think that doesn't matter? So it matters for you, but do you think it matters in general as a society? All of my work with organizations and all of my study of organization design. I'll use Gallup, the Gallup survey work, all the employee engagement work tells me that people want to work for organizations that are more holistic and more integrated. They want to work for a company where Maslow's hierarchy is operational on all levels. I'll simplify that by saying Stephen Covey made Maslow's hierarchy more approachable for me. He broke it down into four levels, as sort of Gallup does too. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, you know, you have to have good living conditions, which is the base of the pyramid. The next level, you've got to be loved and valued. The next level, you have to have opportunities to learn and grow. And at the peak of the pyramid, which would be with Maslow's self-actualization, he said, in an organization, you have to feel as if you're leaving a legacy of contributions that's second to none. Mm -hmm. Giving to others. So it's about legacy, learning, loving, and living. And everything I've seen on employee engagement, which covers the waterfront of companies, says that people want to be operating on all four of those levels, not any one of them. Yep. And the resume level is the base level. It's just the living. It's the conditions. It's the parking space. It's the office. The loving, the learning, and the legacy are important and are foundational for any organization. So I think people aspire to be part of those kinds of organizations that embrace all four of those levels and leaders that embrace all four of those levels. This is fantastic, Doug. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that question. Aligned to this, you say in your book, and I'll quote you, just as you must unite your resume and your eulogy virtues, Leaders must also bring their hearts and their heads to work to be effective. So I'm wondering, what does that mean for you personally? Well, you know, look, we work with people that tend to be left brain oriented and right brain oriented, right? And people that their approach to life tends to be governed by logic and people that are more intuitive and more emotional that tends to be ruled by heart and authenticity. And you're leading an organization filled with all kinds of people. So there has to be logic to what you do. There also has to be heart and authenticity with what you do. And all that you do as a leader has to be done with consistency. So I talk about head, heart, and hands. The logic has to be solid. The authenticity and the heart have to be solid. And the hands are doing it with consistency and showing up with consistency. 
And so I think leaders have to be fully integrated in terms of resume and eulogy. They have to be fully integrated in terms of head, heart, and hands. I think the evidence would suggest if you're too governed by logic and you're not sensitive to the human condition, some people will father you, some people will feel alienated. If you're all heart and there's no logic to what you're doing, you're gonna lose all those left brain people and you'll have people following you who have heart, but the direction won't be clear. And so I think you've gotta be fully integrated as a leader in a conscious way if you wanna lead people and have enduring impact. Look, in any one circumstance, something has to be done. The logic can carry the day or heart can carry the day. But remember, as a leader, you're on deck 24-7. And your time and again, you're being tested and how you're performing over time matters. So I think it's inevitable that you've got to be fully integrated, resume, eulogy, head, heart, hands. How do you know when it's heart? So in other words, of those three, the one that seems to be the most missing, obviously, isn't the logic part. That's what we've hired people for. We hired the brainiest people for management roles. And the hands part follows that, obviously. If you have the competency and you work hard, you're going to meet our normal expectations. It's the hard aspect that's generally missing, but it's not missing for you. And you've emphasized that in your book and you just described it brilliantly in terms of the blend, the integration again. But how do you know, like how as a CEO of three different firms, how do you know, like this is a moment where I'm going to lean into less of the the rational mind and more into the emotional side, more into the caring, the support of the human? Look, I think... IQ and EQ are always operative. And I could argue that people may appear to be logical, but I don't see that clear-eyed logic in every situation either. Just like I don't see enough EQ in situations. But, you know, I guess I'll accept the notion, the premise, the, the heart can feel left behind here. All I know is, if I'm going back to my Gallup survey, The most important level in Gallup is people feeling valued. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying people thinking they are valued. I'm saying people feeling they are valued. Correct. And so this is not a nice to have. This is a must have. So I have that expectation of all leaders and not all leaders deliver on that. And I think the leaders that do are the leaders that win over time. The leaders that don't are the leaders that may win in the moment but can't sustain an effort. And my observation, all of my work on Touchpoints, our first book, said my belief is the first thing you have to do when you engage with an employee or a situation is say, how can I help? That's direct lift from my Neil McKenna experience, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you say, how can I help? And you're trying to find out where your audience, where your people are coming from. What's the issue? What do you think about it? How do you feel about it? And where you seek first, stealing from Stephen Covey, seek first to understand before you leap in with a solution. And I think the leaders that are most effective are the leaders that are saying, how can I help? Want to understand the situation. And if it's a thinking issue, then you contribute with your thinking. If it's a feeling issue, you, you show heightened sensitivity and empathy with the organization around how they're feeling about it. I think as a leader, you take your cue from the organization and you seek first to understand. I think you're foolish to do anything else. I'm digging into this because you've given us an uncommon amount of thought. 
and not everybody that I've had on would be able to articulate the the nuance. I mean, even going into parsing out my questions, the fundamental belief of this podcast is that we're more emotion than we are rational. You know, we're driven by feelings and emotions much more we are than appeals to the mind and what people say to us. It has much more to do with how people feel. And you have given tremendous thought to this. So I really appreciate it. I mean, just your answers. And I think, honestly, if people don't remember a word from this podcast, but if they take one thing away from it, which is to pick up the phone and say, how can I help? Or when somebody comes into your office and the first thing you want to do is say, hey, I don't have time for you right now, or I got things I got to get done, or what is it? The inclination to say, how can I help? It just as it ushered in a transformation of how you felt about what was going to happen next with your counselor. I just think the whole thing is brilliant in terms of setting yourself up to demonstrate to people that you care about them and that you're there to help them, not overrule them or rule over them or make their life difficult or challenging. Well, let me tell you, I have a core belief that, and I'm not the first person to think this, but it's hard for me to imagine working with people that they're going to care about your agenda as an enterprise if you don't care about them. Mm -hmm. That just makes no sense to me. People need to believe you care about them. And as you care about them, they're going to care more about your agenda. And it's a slippery slope. If they don't think you care, good luck leading them to higher ground and performing over time. And another companion thought here, and I wish I'd said it, somebody else said it, but Listen, in leadership, the soft stuff is the hard stuff. Tom Peters. And anybody that talks about a derailing study, virtually all the derailing is not about the hard stuff, the P&L, the return on invested capital, your market share performance. It's inevitably about issues of understanding or misunderstanding between executives and board and teams. It's all the soft stuff. So if you want to be a master of your fate in an organization, whether it's a corporate organization, a nonprofit or the federal government where I do a fair amount of work, you better attend to the soft stuff because the soft stuff is the hard stuff. Why is this still such a big gap in business? You mentioned Gallup and you look at their engagement studies and the needle hasn't really moved substantially in the last 15 years at least. And, you know, that may be up to three points in that time, but that's nominal relative to the opportunity. Why do we fight this so much? Your insight, you're a former CEO of large organizations, it's easy for you, but why isn't it easy for more organizations? I started my career in a more hierarchical world where you sort of did what you were told. It grew out of the corporate world of the last half of the 20th century, was hierarchical and built around a military model. And you did what you were told to do, and your boss knew how to do your job better than you did. And it was done in a different time that wasn't as dynamic or fast-changing there were two generations at work, young white men and older white men, and the world's changed. It's a VUCA world now. Of, my friends at Harvard call it a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. The rate of change is enormous, and you're operating in that world with six different generations, multiple ethnicities, two genders, and all kinds of other socioeconomic conditions. And you're also now competing globally and virtually as opposed to in some small geography with a clear battle plan. So the world has changed and there's so much stress on organizations now 
cutting across all that, that the old hierarchical models are crumbling, clearly, and that we need enlightened leadership. And the enlightened leadership in the 21st century is demanding much more emotional intelligence. And it will come because it has to come. Yep. Mm -hmm. But institutions are slow to change. But I can tell you, they do change. When I started at Campbell, we had anecdotally, we were told we didn't employ engagement in the first uh, year I was there. I had a survey done and we had pretty horrendous engagement. Uh, they had an engagement ratio of two to one. It was less than two to one, 1 1.6 to one. That means that two thirds of your employees are not engaged is what you're saying. Two thirds of my employees were not engaged. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that basically two thirds of my employees were looking for jobs while the other third were doing all the work. Yep. And I was talking to Jim Clifton at Gallup. Well, I said, you know, you don't do many of these. And he said, we've done almost 300 Fortune 500 companies and yours is about the worst. <laughs> and I said, holy cow. Well, I will tell you, we focused on creating a culture that was tough on standards and tender with people for a decade. This can be done. We took it from the worst employee engagement in the Fortune 500 to the best. We went from 1.6 to 1 up to 23 to 1. Out of 24 people, 23 people were highly engaged and one person was not. 12 to 1 was world class by Gallup standards. Gallup standards. And in our case, our top 350 global leaders, our ultimate number was 77 to 1, which Gallup had never seen that high before. And this was from a canned soup company. Yeah, right. That was headquartered in the, in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States. Mm hmm Camden, New Jersey, where we had 75,000 people and 70 murders a year. And if my contention is that if we could do that in those conditions with an old economy canned soup company, this can be done by anyone. Can you pin it down? So I know there's a million things that you did, but if you were, you know, forced to say this one thing created the greatest impact what would it be? In other words, you went from bottom to the top. That's profound. What was the most compelling thing that you did? Like what, if you were to go into Campbell again, based on everything you've learned, what's the first thing you would do? I cared. I love it. I cared about people and I recruited people who cared about people. Fundamentally, we had to have world-class talent, which we recruited in, but we had to care about our people more than anybody ever cared about them before. So we had to have world-class talent, but we had to be world-class caretakers of that talent. So we committed to having high standards for performance and high standards on how we conducted ourselves with our people. It had to go beyond civility. It had to be caring. Can I assume that it drove incremental profitability for you too? It did over time. We grew sales and earnings for 10 straight years. We had record return on invested capital by the time we wrapped up my decade. We had record high cash flow. So we were in a very, very solid position. And then the company went on for the next five years and had a good run. It's had hiccups in the last three, but the company had a good 15-year run based on that. So I would contend, and Gallup will show you, that all the evidence says, the higher the engagement, the more profitable the enterprise.
in the fullness of time. The only person that we've had on the podcast twice is Jim Harder for very much that reason, because he continues to reconfirm what you just said. I want to go on and on here, and I've got a million more questions that I'm kind of already distressed that I'm not going to get to. But we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation we're having, and we ask our guests a rapid succession of questions aimed at learning a little bit more about them personally, their influences, life philosophy, who you are. And we call this the heartbeat round because all the questions require brief, instinctive answers. So if you're willing to go along, I'm going to call out a few questions and ask you to answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you up for this? Let's do it. All right. Very good. Number one thing left for you to do on your bucket list. Uh, You've already stumped me. My bucket list is so long. The number one thing on my bucket list was become a grandparent. And I did seven weeks ago. So that was my bucket list item. And I've already done it. Very good. A well-known organization you most admire for their overall culture and respect for employee well-being. Uh, I admire many organizations, but I'd have to say there's a nonprofit organization that I chair that I have tremendous admiration for, and it's called CECP, Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose. And it's about helping build a better world. And I have tremendous admiration for the people in that organization and all that they're endeavoring to accomplish. What's a well-known organization you least admire for their overall culture and respect for well-being? Right now, the Major League Baseball organization, which has seemed to inspire a culture of cheating. (laughs) The greatest piece of wisdom you took away from your near-fatal automobile accident. When I woke up in the emergency room to my wife holding my hand, my wife said two words to me. She said, I'm here. And what I have endeavored every day since is to basically say to the people I work with, I'm here. How can I help? I'm here. What do you need? I find that people metaphorically have been in a car accident every day, and I just need to show up and say, be fully present and say, I'm here. Your all-time favorite Campbell's soup flavor. Tomato rice soup. (laughs) If you were starting a business today, would you focus on fulfilling a purpose or first focus on how to make money? I'm a purpose-driven leader. I think it all starts with purpose. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. Uh, Tomorrow will be better than today. One guilty pleasure. Only one? (laughs) Uh, Vanilla ice cream. A skill improvement you're working on right now. I'm always trying to be a better empathic listener. I have so much going on in my head sometimes. I'm not seeking first to understand as much as I intend to be. Your synonym for the word heart. Uh, Caring. Leadership trait that destroys the most careers. Greed. One quality every candidate for a managerial role must possess. Character. How do you spend your time on long flights? Uh, Reading. And beside love, what does the world need more of? Uh, Empathy. Wonderful. These were great. Wonderful answers. Thank you for going through this with me. And I want to go back to the rest of our conversation. You ready to go back? Sure. I want to ask you about something that you did that's very much aligned to caring for people. You know, we follow each other on Twitter, and I've seen this in your tweets, but I don't know that it was in the book. But if it was, you said that when you were at Campbell, that you had 24,000 employees. Nevertheless, you hand wrote 30,000 thank you notes. Yeah. 
Why did you invest the time in this? What was the reason for it? And why do you advocate for it? Well, I'll try and do this. In a and how did you learn to do it? Well, uh, what happened was when I was fired from my job and I met Neil McKenna, he said, you're going to be a terrible interview. <laughs> you're shy. You're introverted. You haven't really thought through what you want to do with your life. And now you've got to go out and sell yourself. Good luck. And he was right. He worked with me and I got better. But he said, as you do your job search process, you need a signature practice, something that works for you. And as an introvert, I found I was better at handwriting notes to people than I was on the spot. So I would go interview at a company. I would come to, say, Campbell Soup Company, meet the receptionist, and then be led around for the day and meet people. I would collect all those business cards. I would go to the coffee shop next door. I would handwrite a note to each person I met, including the receptionist, the front of the building, saying, thank you for your help. I appreciate the way you connected me with so-and-so. I was as specific as I could be. I would then walk back to the building, give the notes to the receptionist and say, could you have these delivered today or tomorrow morning? And I started this practice of handwriting notes of appreciation for people who were being helpful in a very specific way. You would be amazed. The next time I went back to the building, I guarantee you the receptionist had never had a note like that before. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, it's great to have you back. Who are you seeing today? How can I help you? And already my day was off and running. I said, wow, there's power in this. And I'm expressing myself in a very genuine way. I'm doing it in a way that works for me because I can think about it and I can write it down. And so as I got into my work experience at Nabisco and then at Campbell, my last 20 years of my career, especially, where I had lots of people working for me, I thought, you know, there's something to this. I discovered that everywhere I worked, organizations are great critical thinking machines. We're built to find what's wrong and fix it. But we're terrible about celebrating what's working. Mm -hmm. And even in the most broken companies, when I was part of KKR and working at Nabisco, or when I was at Campbell Soup Company, or later at Avon, I would find that eight out of 10 things that we were doing were being done right, and nobody was acknowledging it. So what I started doing was I had my assistant at Campbell pull all the stuff that was going on every day off the portal and print it out for me. I'm going back a ways now, 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it would be printed out. I had a two to two and a half hour commute home every day. Oh. I would read all the stuff that had gone on that day, and I would identify 10 to 20 people that I wanted to handwrite a note to on the way back into work the next morning. And I would literally handwrite a very short note to those folks saying, I see you, you over-delivered the quarter. Great job. I see your employee engagement scores went up. Great. I see that you got this project done on time under budget. Nice work. Because there was a ton of good stuff going on. I knew we were going to find what was going wrong, but I wasn't sure we were celebrating adequately what was going right. So I started doing basically 10 to 20 notes a day, six days a week. And it got to the point where I couldn't go through the day without doing it because I felt I was kind of going through withdrawal. Because it feels so good thanking people, you mean? Yeah, for performance-oriented stuff. This, for the most part, was not have a nice day, happy birthday. Right, right. It was not meant to be gratuitous. It was celebrating contributions of significance. Mm -hmm. And I was reinforcing the agenda of the company. So I did this, and I would write them on my way in every day. And I found when I got into work, I was filled with gratitude for all the good work that was going on. 
and it gave me energy to kind of plow through a, what would typically be a pretty arduous day. But I just celebrated 10 to 20 people that were doing good work. And I never added all of them up before, but when I retired, I think it was an interview maybe with Forbes or Fortune or something. They said, we understand you've written a lot of notes. And I said, yeah, I do 10 to 20 a day. And they said, well, how many have you written? And we'd never done the math. We did the math and it turned out to be just to Campbell employees, over 30,000 notes. And we had, depending on the time, we sold off a company or two, but it was 20 to 25,000 people. So that everybody in the company at one time or another probably had a note from me and it was handwritten and hand signed and it was sitting up in their cubicle with a thumbtack and they were everywhere, wherever you went in the company. We were in 38 countries and we were marketed in 125 countries and my notes were omnipresent celebrating what was working. I bet you 99% of the people that you sent notes to 20 years ago still have them if they're still alive. Oh, I still have the notes that I have. And as you may know, I was involved right before I retired, two years before, in a very near-fatal car accident. And my wife would be sitting there in the hospital room with me. And all of a sudden, we started getting notes. And they would bring in the mail every day, and there were piles and piles of notes. And all these employees I'd been writing notes to, and by the way, they went out the next day. So these people got these handwritten notes the next day or as soon as I could get them to them. And oftentimes they were sent to their homes. I started getting notes from them saying, you know, wishing me well and saying, I still remember when you wrote me this note. Mm, How'd that make you feel? It lifted our spirits. My wife would sit there in the hospital room and spend a lot of a lot of time in the hospital the last two years I was with the company. And we have a whole bookshelf of notebooks filled with employee thank you notes, thanking me for thanking them. Right. (laughs) And wishing us well in our hour of need. So listen, this is powerful stuff. And it's the caring about the organization. And the more I cared about them, and it came back to me many fold, I didn't do it to get the caring notes back, but that was the inevitable. That was the end result. The other end result was that you got tremendous performance out of people because that lifts people and inspires people in ways that very few things that a leader can do, particularly when you're the CEO of the organization. People feel seen and they feel heard. And that, I have learned, is just transformational in terms of what people are willing to do for you separate from sending you a thank you note and saying get well and recognizing you for the note that you sent them years ago. It's pretty great. Well, on my website, when I retired, the employees did a video, which is somewhere on my website, and I get choked up every time I see it. They did a video thanking me for all my thank you notes to them. And it came from every nook and cranny of the company. And it went on for way too long, maybe five minutes, just describing it. I can still remember the feelings I had when I saw it and how choked up I was the day I retired. Mm -hmm. We had a very special relationship. And what a blessing it was to be part of that company, be part of the renaissance of that company, be part of the lives of all those people and, and to share my part of my journey with them. It was quite special. 
Doug, I have so enjoyed this conversation and wish it could go on and on. I want to like turn the stage over to you and say that the reason we're here together is to talk about your book. And we've been doing that indirectly for the whole time. But is there something specifically that something we may not have covered that you want to make sure gets heard by our audience before we go? Well, yeah, the blueprint will have it out in March of 2020. And I have sort of tried to codify my my life journey into an approach that can be helpful to the everyday aspirational leader who feels as if they're trying to get a sip of water out of the fire hydrant of life. They are swamped. They barely have time to say good morning to their kids before they go off to work and good night to their kids when they get back from work after dinner before they start working on emails again. And yet somehow we expect them to become better, more authentic, more impactful leaders. I have tried to codify my experience down to a point where we can create an approachable, pragmatic, practical process for leaders to lift their leadership to new heights in a way that fits perfectly into the cockamamie life that that they lead today. And we've done that with the blueprint. I'm proud of the work, and it's only going to get better as we go forward. If people devote a day of time to exploring the book, they'll find a path forward that can help them start to impact the world around them within a week. And that can put them on a trajectory of leadership contribution that goes well beyond whatever they might have imagined is possible. This is doable. We just seem to make leadership so unapproachable and so difficult that people begin to lose hope. I guess the last thing I would say is the people that I hold in highest regard, the Neil McKenna's of my life, we can make leadership feel unapproachable. But all I have to do is think back to Neil McKenna and saying, how can I help? And already I see a light at the end of the tunnel where all I have to do is go up to people and be more like the people that had an impact on me with the people with whom I live and work. And that's the spirit of the blueprint. Everyone can lift their game in a way that fits in the middle of their cockamamie life. And that's why we wrote the blueprint. And I'm proud of the work we've done with it. And I'm excited to see where we can take it next. Well, congratulations on the book. And it has been a profound pleasure to have you join me on the podcast, but really just to have this discussion with you. So thank you very, very much, sir. Great, Mark. I do enjoy the work you do and I respect it. So keep it coming. Thank you. You don't know how much that means to me. I appreciate that very much. All right, Mark. I've got to go. Yeah, you bet. Have a great evening. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to thank the people who helped me succeed, and these include Mirjana Novkovic, Kerry Finnessy, Randy Young, Ken Boynton, Joshua Richards, Susan DeRoche, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And I thank you so very much for listening and hope as always that you'll introduce us to your friends and family and acquaintances, anyone on the street you meet. (laughs) We want to get the word out. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 